This is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. For part two with Stacey Barton, we continue the conversation of immersive experiences at the parks, along with her writing styles, daily rituals, and everything else that keeps her moving forward. So I hope you enjoy this part two with Stacey Barton, and keep on keeping on. Particularly with Ringling Brothers, and I only bring this up because I was at the last day that circus ran at Nassau Coliseum. I was at the matinee. Did you specifically work on the show order? Were you? No, no. What was your What was your position with it um, in any any capacity? Because that was that was you know obviously a staple of America, and I completely understand everything surrounding it. You know, shouldn't treat animals any other sort of way other than positive. I'm totally in agreement with that. But it was really special what that was. It was a piece of history. You know, it was an old piece of theater. What was that Ab- to you? Yeah. What was your time with that? Absolutely. So they have um, they have a three ring circus that tours on the train. And then they have a one ring circus called the gold unit that tours in trucks. So it goes to where the train doesn't. Right. It's a smaller one ring circus. So I worked on a gold unit circus called Hallucination. And um, the premise of it was the ringmaster was a magician. So they had a lot going on. So the ringmaster was a magician and he had his assistant. They were adorable, young kids. And then we had a troop of Italian clowns and then who didn't speak much English at all. And then, um, you know, all the spectacle uh, show. Um, The probably one of the most fun things about that project was when I met um, Kenneth Feld. He flew me to New York to see if he thought I could cut the mustard. And um, I remember that I actually went to Coney Island to see the single ring circus running at the moment. And it was in an actual big top actually on Coney Island. And it was really talk about a piece of history. It was incredible. Um, When I saw saw the movie, The The Greatest Showman, that's the title. Oh, yeah, that's it. I could see so much of the circus in that. Another really special moment in that show was, um, it might sound funny, but I found a baby elephant hair, which is this thing that's about four or five inches long and as hard as a wire. And it's supposed to be very good luck to find a baby elephant hair. And I had it rolled up in a little coil in my um, like wallet change purse thing for years. And at one point I lost it. I don't know where it went. I guess it needed to give someone else good luck. Yeah. (laughs) Now, were you working with, it was like, you know, show writer and the magician who's coming up with the tricks and now we're connecting them into a through line? Yes, we did also have a director and a choreographer. Great. But I was responsible for the show concept Mm -hmm. and then the script. And then, of course, the three of us, the director and the writer, we, you know, we talked and worked together and developed it together. But it was the burden was on me mostly to do the creative and then. When we came to the scripting, of course, it was working actually with the magician hmm. on the script. And a couple of the acts, it was another act that was a singing act that I did some help to kind of, um, uh, you know, just hone and tweak her routine on the trapeze because she spoke and sang. Hmm. And then I worked with the clowns to kind of figure out what their bits were. So it was it was really, um, there wasn't a lot of typed Stuff. There was a lot of work um, creating, developing the arc of the story and the when when the sh- show elements happen. Is there a particular show that you've worked on that has the most you in it? 
I guess that could mean you didn't have to use a lot of intellectual property and you could add more of your own storytelling into it. Does anything come to mind? Yes, we did um, another immersive experience last November for a group of 40, family of 40, where we took them to the North Pole and then to Santa's workshop. And it was a full musical. So a lot of times, you know, as a performer um, for Disney, the shows on the stages are usually reviews. They're a musical review, right? And, and it's great. That's exactly what we want to see. We want to hear the songs we love. We want to see the characters. And that is ba-boom, as it should be. Um, <laughs> yeah. In this show, I had a cast of 12 singers and dancers and maybe six more um, equity performers. I think that was the cast. It was huge. And... Um, and so it was a full musical with a full musical arc. We used music that had already been written. We didn't write the music. We wrote one custom song. Um, but I think when I came in and saw that show, it was super thrilling, I think, for that reason, because I really felt I had, I had put a lot of myself into it. Each of, the, each of the elves had a completely different character. And we had different groups of elves. There were the baking elves and the singing elves and the Rapping elves, well, the rapping elves were the funniest because they were W-R-A-P-P-I-N-G rapping elves, but they were like, you know, yo, rapping elves, right? Um, so that show, was, that show was amazing. You know, like the Jolly Holiday, they came into a, a small um, room that was the North Pole with a, with a big pole coming out of a frozen wishing fountain that was the North Pole. And when a little seven-year-old threw her pixie dust in and it swirled and the lights moved and then the things parted and there was the front of Santa's workshop, which was an enormous castle. And they went inside. And again, we had a circular stage in the middle and four long tables came out like spokes, kind of like an X. And um, the family sat at all those tables and then all around the outside was Santa's workshop. We had a cuckoo that came out of a clock, which was an improv performer. We had um, a huge Christmas tree. And of course, when it was time for the tree to light up, this particular night was the night that the first letters from Santa were coming. Oh, yeah. So when the tree lit up during their custom song to shine the light out the window for all the letters to Santa to come, of course, the tree burnt out because there wasn't enough believing down oh. south. And so the family gathered around and held hands and we did this custom song about wishing and dreaming and believing as children and the tree lit up and the lights went everywhere and the big machine in the corner got filled with letters and they went streaming out into the room and then the family took the letters and actually created the toys that the children asked for and then filled it, wrapped them and filled the sleigh with them. That was really fun. And the whole thing was a musical. So all that happened with all that interaction in between full-on choreographed musical numbers up on the stage out in the house with the people. It was just really a, a really special, special um, event. I can only imagine the magic in the room because there's so much, uh, you know, you create the tension with the tree going out and then the release. And that's just even more exciting because, you know, kids are just there excited to see anything to do with the North, North Pole. So that's Oh, like and there were mostly adults. <laughs> oh. And I mean, it was, it was a family, right? So there's teenagers. Oh, by the time it ended when, you know, Santa and the elves thanked them for saving Christmas and sent them, you know, on their way back out to the North Pole and were waving at the door. You know, the dad is crying. 
the the teenagers are all arm in arm swaying i mean they were totally enwrapped and they were totally we're together we believe and it was just oh it's really something the magic of disney is really um it can really be used for such good things it's very powerful it yeah. can change it can change a lot i i saw so many so many transform transformations of guests on cruise line, you know, 5,000 new people a week. And it's just, it's a beautiful thing to see, you know, day one or two, the parents want to get around the ship and see everything, yada, yada, yada. By day five, they're dragging their kids to see, you know, Mickey for the seventh time. It's mm. beautiful. It's so beautiful. And that's such a beautiful story. I have a logistical question. It wouldn't be me if I didn't. Could you put holes in the space you were working in? Or was this every show you created have to be completely collapsible and leave no mark within the space? It sounds almost like you had to go into the floor, you know, creating holes in the floor for things to come out just logistically. Cause I know people don't think about this, but all art generally kind of has to happen in a box with some, you know, uh, parameters. So I'm curious, what, were there, were those in existence for the events? Um, so they were in Disney ballrooms, okay. which are, are really set up for banquets yeah. and they're themed to the resort. So we have to either work alongside it or against it. This yeah. particular show, um, the Christmas one happened in the contemporary ballrooms, which has a very colorful floor. And so our set designer worked with the colors and the floor. And so our Santa's workshop was very jewel tones and very bright pinks and purples. And, um, mm. but in terms of, uh, I don't think they put any holes in the floor, but I know we had to bring everything in. Certain resorts have more than others in terms of rigging and all that. And that is completely outside of my realm of expertise. Right. But it is in these few that we talked about today, we happen to have landed on those particular immersive experiences. Yeah. They happen in uh, the ballrooms at Disney. And so pretty much everything has to be brought in and then taken out again. Sure, of so course. Usually there's a a day or two of load in day of show and a day of load out. That's pretty quick load in for the size show you're talking about. That's it, it is. And, yeah. and there's very little rehearsal in the space and you only get to do it once. Yeah. You know, so you know, there's a funny, t sorry to do a little spin off here, but there's a, there is a documentary or it was a documentary on Netflix about original pieces that were written for like Chevrolet or like Tide Soap, they'd have these musicals that they would put on for the companies each year. And I know uh, a lot of Broadway performers would go perform, the, what, I guess they're called industrials, or there's a, I don't know if you've ever seen that, It's I, and I don't remember the name of it, I'll have to find it if you're interested, but there is, there's a whole world of that with corporations, you know, around the world. So it's crazy, these budgets and thoughtful storytellings that no one really gets to see besides 50, 100, 200 people, that's it. Right. And I have done also at Disney event group, uh, in addition to the immersive experiences that are Disney, we've also done a lot of work with other companies where we tell their story, bring it to life. Um, and it's, it can be for thousands of people, Yeah, um, you know, a thousand or two or a smaller group. Yeah. We've done a, a good, I've done a lot of that. That's, that's probably more of my bread and butter comes from that. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I know. And the budgets are massive. I know a lot of Broadway performers that really love those, you know, when they're coming around because it's like it's a serious salary for two nights of work, one night of work. I mean, it's the companies are gigantic and it's like the other side of theater. No one sees it. You know, the public doesn't right. see it. So that's um, 
That's fascinating. I'm we call that wholesale theater. Wholesale. <laughs> we can't tell your friends and family to go see the show. No one will ever see it. No, and it's gone as quickly as it was. Yeah. The is there a particular show you've worked on that? Um, was d- difficult, had a lot of challenges, took you a lot of time to work out how it was going to flow or just simple plot issues. Does anything come to mind that was a real challenge for you? Um, I mean, they all have their challenging moments where, where you are, um, where your budget comes in short and you've got to slash things. Right. Um, but I think in particular, when there is more constraints and where most people would be like, ah, I can't do anything inside this. There's too many. This has to be this way and this way and this way and this way. I find that when there are the most constraints, I have to be the most creative. Yeah. Um, but in terms of things that were hard. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Nothing's really popping no, into my head. That's fine. No, it's and it's interesting because you're absolutely right. The more of a box I think a creator is put in, the more creative they get, which is what you just said. It's so true. I mean, you say like, well, no, we only have these racks of lights or the trick can only happen this far downstage or the drop has to be here or that's not going to work because we only have 20 minutes to wrap that story up. And that happens in like, it can happen anywhere. I mean, probably happens everywhere (laughs) when you're telling stories. Right. Now, when it gets to be too many, it can be painful. Right. Um, But, but certainly, you know, it's kind of like, it's the blank page is harder. You know, you can't, you can't edit a blank page. So if someone says, here's four things that have to be. So it kind of starts you with the first draft and then you have to figure out how to make that draft work. And then I go back to the same thing. What are we promising the audience? How are we delivering that promise and what do they take away? And if you continue to ask that question at every turn, whether your budget gets slashed in half or it goes from, a 20 minute musical on the, uh, you know, on, on a stage to a, you know, a, a walk around character. How are you going to do that? When I um, worked with uh, Disneyland Paris's entertainment team, Mark Huffman brought me out there to work with his team for a week and talk about, you know, uh, how to tell a story in a theme park, how to use a writer. What's that relationship like? And um, we talked a lot about what you do if you've developed something like we, we talked about cocoa. So let's say you develop a whole land of cocoa. Uh oh, your budget just shifted. You've got um, a, a 15 minute show. Oh, if your budget just shifted, you've got a parade. You know, and so if you're looking at the IP being Coco, what are you going to, what's the best part for the parade? What's the best part for a show? What's the best part for a ride or a queue? Or, you know, so knowing, uh, knowing that when you get to the heart of the matter, like what is this about? What is this portion of the, sh- of the story about? Or what is the story itself about? then you can navigate when things get hard, when you get thrown um, challenge, physical challenges or IP challenges or time challenges. If you know the heart and you know what you're giving the audience, then you, you can adapt and you have to be able to do that. Or in my career, that's what I've had to do constantly. Yeah, especially working for massive companies. I mean, even not working for any, any storytelling, things just change. Rent goes up, rent goes down, money comes in, money disappears. It happens. So that's those are really right. great points. I, I want to shift slightly a little bit actually down to your your process of writing. Um, I understand sometimes you know you only work in the room with other creators, right? If you're doing a massive collaboration thing. But if you're working independent on yourself or someone says, hey, create this thing and, and shoot it back to me, 
Are you writing in the morning, at night, the afternoon? Are you in a comfy chair? Are you at a desk? Are you outside? Uh, coffee? Do you have tea? I'm just curious, like everything, you know, are you still on the pen and paper? Are you on final draft? What, what are you looking at? What does all of that entail? Right. Um, well, I pretty much write, uh, when I'm writing on assignment, I write as soon as the next thing is requested. Like I don't wait. I'm immediate. Like if I get off the phone, if I can write then all the better. I try not to have more than three major projects going at once because I'm so intuitive. My brain gets clouded. So it's really hard for me to have more than three because I'm holding so much inside me, so much information intuitively. Um, and then I sit down and I really trust the creative process. I, I rarely outline. I usually take in all the information, take copious notes. And then when I sit, I just dive in and I trust the creative process. I just start writing. Sometimes it ends up being in the middle, you know, and then I have to go back and edit it. But I'm a, a real believer in the beauty of a first draft. Get it out, get it onto the page. You'll discover things. So I work at Disney. The writer works really much in tandem with the show director. Mm -hmm. And so we'll come up with where we're going. I'll start to write it out, whether it's a treatment or a script, you know, because it has to start with a narrative first. So the whole team can yeah. get behind the story. Yeah. So that will be back and forth between us. But just the process of writing it down as I'm writing down the experience of the audience member, what are they seeing first? Then what happens? Do they smell something? Do they touch something? You know, and then I write that narrative. And as I'm writing the narrative, I'm like, Oh my gosh, we totally forgot to account for this. Mm. And then an idea comes in my head because I'm in the creative flow. So I just write it all out and then take it back to the director and say, Hey, here's a couple things that came out. You might like them. You might not like them. Right. And we talk it again. And then I go back and, in my world, the narrative happens 20 times before the script, you know, so there's, there's, and there's narrative of all lengths, right? You know, sometimes the first part is really short, but to get to a really short objective or a really short concept, I find you have to do a fair amount of writing mm. to get to the small, you know, what is the adage? Um, I'm sorry, the letter was so long. I didn't have time to write it short. <laughs> Right, right, right. You know, because the shorter, the shorter the description, the more clarified it is. And oh, yeah. so I find that usually in the process for me as the writer, for me, he's going to contribute that one line to try and get the, the pitch sold, the budget funded. Sure. I have to write a fair amount, maybe a page, maybe two pages. And, and even though we brainstormed the here's what we think it's about. By the time I've done that work, then I know clear I can use better nouns and better verbs because ultimately that's what I can bring to the table. I can say it in a, in a way that brings a better picture, you know, not like this is going to be a really fantastic show with lots of spectacle. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. It's, you know, not, yeah. I'm not saying anybody does that, but right. you know, I can, I can come in and say, it's going to be a fireworks show that's going to actually touch the heart because we're going to get, use music to take people through their journey of their time at Disney. And we're going to use the songs to help them remember when they fell in love, when they had a kid, when they moved to a different house, you know? Right. So. But it's that specific, right? Like the objective or the log line comes last, you know, it's after thousands and thousands of pages, you get it down to like one man's journey to da, da, da. And then you have your right. ad really right. for the story. And sometimes you do have to come up with that right away and that's happened as well um but 
generally speaking, the way that I've worked is we usually are brainstorming and I'm writing in the brainstorm um, as a part of the brainstorm itself as part of the narrative. And so then I'll come back after hearing this whole room of people brainstorming and have, you know, all those pages of writing that, that we've done all around the route on the giant post-it notes. Sure. And then I will take all that information and then I will just sit down and I will start to tell the story of where the energy was in the room. Mm. And so that's usually in the experiences that I've had, that's how we've come to, Oh, this show is about, and then you get the little line that you right. send off. Um, yeah. Are you completely digital or do you also yeah. journal notebooks or you have all your notes on your computer as well? Um, I, I only journal handwriting for like therapeutic reasons or Great. like morning pages. If you know, Julia Cameron and the artist way. Oh yeah. Um, I will do morning pages by hand, but I don't do any, um, I don't do any work by hand when I'm working. I type, I never learned how to type. So I, I don't touch type, but I type very quickly and it's very bizarre and no one could read my notes. I type things that make sense to me. Like I grab emotional statements or really clear pictures while the people in the room are talking. I don't take notes, but I'm taking what I need. Right. The energy in the room around the story, around the project. Um, so no, I'm, I, I type. That's a beautiful thing to translate emotion, you know, a feeling and get words around it, but only to use those words to get that emotion to the next person. Cause it's not often about the words. It's about the feeling you're conveying and that's storytelling. So right. That's, that's well, there's, there has to be something scenic. Something has to happen. And in my world, it has to matter to the audience because again, back when I started, if it didn't matter to the audience, they walked away. Yeah. So it's my goal to have people like on the edge of their seats. They just want to know what's going to happen next. And I'm so invested in this. I feel exactly like Miguel, you know, yeah, right. Coke, whatever, right. you know. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Do you have any mentors or people you check in with regularly, um, professionally for writing or even just life? Um, my, my very first writing mentor, this would not have been in the themed world, but in the literary world, I also write books, mm. um, was, uh, Janis Shermian and he passed away actually, um, some years ago and I miss him dearly all the time. Uh, he was in my corner for my literary work. Um, but this, and I really haven't replaced him and he has been gone for, wow, probably almost five years now. But this summer, when I was floundering around in the pandemic, not knowing where in the world, um, as a career contractor, I was going to get my next job. Um, I actually reconnected with a man named Gene Columbus. You may have heard his name. Mm -hmm. He was one of the original um, hiring executives for Disney. He hired show directors and uh, all kinds of things. And um, we reconnected on LinkedIn and he really caught me at a time where the pandemic had me just utterly forlorn. Mm. And I was, I was just starting to go, there has got to be a way to look forward with hope. And just about the moment that I picked my head up, he just came right in, just into my life and reminded me, he offered to have a call, reminded me who I was, what I do, that I'm a storyteller, that I love audiences, that I'm excited about what we can learn from this time of being down, how my voice about the audience being so important matters right now because we can all see without the audience, themed entertainment is nothing. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. Um, so Gene yeah. Columbus has become my mentor in this crazy um, topsy-turvy pandemic. And he's just like a cheerleader. And he'll talk to me about, you know, if I have a conversation with someone coming up, he'll he'll ask me questions and I'll be talking for a little while and then I'll say something and he'll be, that's the person who needs to show up on this call. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he's just, I, and I'm typing every, every word he says I type, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, it's so, it's, and especially during this time, connecting, connecting, communication, you know, if I didn't, if I wasn't running this show, it'd be a lot shorter conversations, you know, that are a lot less, you know, figured out because if we're just not communicating, you know, you're not going to the coffee shop as much, you're not going out. So it's like talking, speaking, listening is so important during this time. Well, and I have found it to be like, in my own personal way I go about it is I I feel like I've opened a channel, um, a a channel of connection and a channel of hope and a a channel of, um, of work. You know, like my goal is to do work that I love that brings the world joy. Mm. And so I open anything in that channel. So people call me like you called me for the podcast, or I have young professionals calling me and saying, would you take a Zoom call with me about how you've done your career, about what it's like to have done this? Or they'll see something that I posted on LinkedIn and say, can we talk about that? And then at the other end of that same channel is me reaching out to people who are in positions that could hire me and saying, hey, do you have a moment? To Zoom just so we can connect so that I can tell you a little bit about what I do and who I am and maybe we'll be able to do something together. And I think that open channel, it has to be open both ways. So I'm able, totally able to take on a call and totally able to get on a call that someone else is willing to take from me. Mm-hmm. And I found in this time, people are super generous. Like just really, I, I haven't had really anyone say no. I won't talk to you. Um, and so I try to extend that the other way. And it's really kind of lovely. I want to jump into the publishing, being a published author. It's not just theme parks and entertainment for you. It's it's books as well. And are you, well, let's talk about what you've worked on. And then are you working on any other <laughs> subsequent um, publications? I know you've had some, and we were talking about this before we recorded, how intelligent it is to have a, a children's picture book in a way that you can leave with after seeing an event. And it's a way of taking that event with you and you have all these memories associated with it. It's so smart from a merchandising standpoint. Um, but you've done poetry as well. Uh, does anything, do you want to add anything to that? I know we want to put these books in the links of the bio as well when we're done talking about it, but do what, does anything come to mind on that? Yeah, it's, it's been a really nice, um, um, a nice balance for me to do the themed entertainment, which is essentially work on assignment, right? I mean, I bring my whole self to it and all my sensibilities and my experience and infuse that into what I'm creating like any artist does. But the inception of the idea is someone else's, um, or at least someone else's IP. Um, so that work on assignment balanced with writing my own work has been a, a really nice um, experience for me. Not all writers are like that. Some writers prefer to have a job that doesn't require their writing um, work, and then they create books that is their writing. Mm-hmm. But for me, I found I wanted to be always working in the world of nouns and verbs, better nouns and better verbs. It works for everybody. It works for themed entertainment. It works for 
um, poetry for sure, works right. for children's books and um, short fiction. Short fiction is probably my favorite thing to write. Um, and what would that and be classified I'm, as? That's not, that doesn't make it like middle grade or YA. No, no, no. Short, short fiction does not. Yeah. Short stories. You know, think yeah, of short stories. Oh, Henry, right? When you were in school. Oh, yeah. Um, Flannery O'Connor, uh, you know, William Faulkner, Alison Monroe is, you know, the giant of our time. Yeah. But short fiction is is basically telling a complete story, but in, you know, less than 5,000 words. And flash fiction, which is my favorite, is usually less than 1,000 words. So you take someone in a whole story arc and basically a page. Wow. So that's my, those are my favorites to do for the book world. But in, yeah. in my book world, um, because I love emotionally rich experiences and character-driven stories and poetic language, um, I'm in what's the, called the category of literary fiction. And there is really no money in that category. <laughs> so I, I do the themed entertainment because I love it, but it also provides a paycheck. And then I do the book work because it, it really provides a fine, a fine art experience for my language. And so it, it's infused by the scenes that I have to constantly create in themed entertainment, but then the fine literature, the poetic quality of what I do in my book writing also informs the way that I can take a script in a themed entertainment project and give it the least amount of dialogue possible. My favorite place to work is at Disneyland Paris because there's seven languages. That means the show has to be the show, yeah. right? You have to feel it and know it based on the music and the moment and the emotion that you can convey through physical movement. I was a dancer before also. And so, so my literature, that kind of poetic language informs my ability to um, take away as much language as possible. I always say if I've done my job well in themed entertainment, there's very little dialogue and a whole lot of story. Yeah. That comes from poetry, right? It does. And then all those scenes that you have to make it real with the audience is going to walk away. That informs my literature, even though it's not plot driven. If, if nothing's happening, people are going to put the book down. Yes. So for me, it's been a delightful balance that has suited me really well. Have you, are, have you been during this time, have you had more time to write um, short stories and or just anything in the book world? Um, you would think, um, but it, it, with the, with the, um, added stress of trying to find new work, mm -hmm. it makes it a little bit hard to be in that creative zone, but I did spend the month of April, um, on a project that I got about 80 pages into. So that was really exciting. And that was for the month of April. So I did generate some new work then, but I have not generated a lot of new work mm -hmm. in this time. I spent a lot of my time. Um, really networking and talking to people about where are we going to go after the pandemic? Yeah. What kind of shows are people going to want to see? What kind of experiences are they going to be hungry for? Let's plan for that now. Let's not wait till they're back. I'm curious if you're willing to share anything that you've come up with, because I have asked this question to a lot of my writing buddies. What stories do people want to see? Does anything come to mind for you? Um, I think it's, both the content of the story, um, but but the experience. I think people are going to want to be, it was already happening. The trend was already moving to converge digital and live. That was already happening. There was already a greater and greater t trend 
for the audience to be more intensely immersed. Yeah. You know, there's some wild things going on in the immersive theater space that are, you know, like a weekend at a castle or a whole afternoon in a strip mall where you're being chased by murderers or whatever. You know, I mean, there's some really unbelievable stuff happening in the experiential and immersive um, worlds. And I think, so those things were already starting, we were starting to see those being asked for and requested, you know, escape rooms and yeah. immersive experiences and um, shows where you get to choose the ending. and Like a night um, of Clue. I've seen those like dinners where you solve a murder, that kind of, yeah. Right, exactly. So I think that, I think those things were already trending. And with the with the generation that we have now that are bringing their children to the parks, these are a lot of gamers. They're used to being the star of the show, not even watching the show. They're used to starring in it. So that kind of harkens back to my experience with the street theater where I'm saying, hey, they want to matter yeah. in the show. So I think as people come back, yeah. the connection is so important. They're going to be both raw and tender toward how they feel about the people they've realized. I mean, how many people have you talked to that have reconnected to people they haven't talked to in a decade, Yeah. right? So there's going to be this sort of raw place of I haven't had that connection. And then this tender place of I really honor those connections. So I think material like Coco, you know, where that talks about connection and family and relationship um, is going to be, is going to be important. And I think that the ability to make people the center of it, you know, like I keep thinking we should have the cue should be on your phone, you know, right. So let's, let's start the story before the story, you know, in special events, we start the story before the story, we send elaborate um, interactive invitations. Um, we send, we send emails after that remind them of what happened or gifts yeah. in their room. You know, so the, the, the experience from soup to nuts, I think wants to be even that much more integrated. So for me, it's more of how than what the content is, but of course it's both. Of course, of course. And um, I've now, <laughs> truth be told, I've been to Walt Disney World twice since <laughs> since the pandemic happened. And I got to be honest, I've never felt safer. I feel safer there than my own supermarket. But uh, there is great social distancing that's happening with these with these interactive games that I had seen on the ship with like a Mickey's um, detective agency where they have the cards and they go around. But now they have these, you know, in these windows seemingly nothing is there and someone will show up with a phone because they know what they're looking for and have this, you know, five minute experience, which is a ride. I mean, that's a ride. You're in the world. You're not even in the magic kingdom. You're in like next near Gaston's tavern or you're like in that world and you're having an yeah. interaction, which is just, it's beautiful. It's brilliant. Yeah. And it, it is, it, it is going to be, I think the interactivity, um, the immersion, the agency, an empowerment of the of the guest is is going to have to come into play more and more. Um, I think the trick is always. I mean, there there's places having fabulous technology. There's amazing things being done in the Far East and the Middle East in terms of wild technology. But we have to make sure we stay with the story. We have to go back to why are we using the technology? What's the promise? What's the story? What's the promise? The story promise to the audience. How are we going to deliver that? And what are they going to take away? And then if we can do that while using the most cutting edge technologies, the most immersion and the most interactivity for the guest, we will be winning on all the fronts, not just cool technology 
or really heartfelt story, but yes, and all of it. It's keeping the heart. It's definitely keeping the heart because I, yes, and I've been there. I've seen something where I'm like, well, that was a spectacle, but it didn't connect me to, it was a spectacle though, you know, and that's, you're absolutely right. Keeping the heart, always keeping the heart. Um, As we wrap up here, are there any favorite books or most gifted books that you particularly enjoy reading that come to mind on any topic, anywhere, the whole gamut, you know? Um, in, in the, on craft, my favorite books are Natalie Goldberg's Writing Down the Bones. It's been around for a long time. I love it because you can pop around any chapter and she gives you really concrete exercises. Mm-hmm. Um, I love The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, yeah. especially if you're feeling timid about your art or um, afraid to put it out there or assuming that you can't make a living as an artist. That's a great book for that. And then um, probably the best book on craft itself for me on language is um, uh, um, The Poet's Handbook um, by by, uh, Mary Oliver. Yeah. And that's an incredible book. It's a very, very dense book. And it, and it really deals with, with language and form um, in a really insightful way. Uh, and it's like you just can take little nuggets of it at a time. But it, it, you know, in the world of writing, of course, it's scenes and action and dialogue and setting. But it, it's always better nouns and better verbs, even if it's what you're saying in the screenplay is the action that's happening. Mm. It's still... What's the, what's the shortest way I can say that? It's with the best noun and the best verb. And the Poet's Handbook really is great for just that really deep look at language, which is the medium as writers that we are in. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have, do you have any favorite failures or apparent failures that set you up for success along your journey? Does anything come to mind? That is such a good question. Um, I'm having a blank. That's fine. Um, Oh, yes. (laughs) I thought of one. I have it. Okay, so have you heard of Duffy the Bear? No. Okay, Duffy the Bear is Mickey's pal. He's humongous. See, I'm ashamed to say that. (laughs) Duffy the Bear. He's a big thing in Tokyo, Disneyland, and and here. So long ago, maybe maybe early 2000s, um, merchandise at Walt Disney World came to me with this idea. They had this bear named Duffy who's, um, you know, his little bear paw, the bear paw print was a Mickey head. Oh, okay. And and they they wanted to um, create a storybook that they would sell in the store with Duffy about Duffy and Mickey's friendship. Yeah. So at the time, I think I had newly published my first children's book and went into this um, meeting with David Duffy, who is fantastic. Um, he's now over uh, Disneyland Paris. But- no relation, though, to Duffy the Bear. Oh no! Oh, that's no. so funny. <laughs> okay, that is hilarious. I was no. To see. <laughs> oh, that is funny. I hadn't even thought of that. Well, anyway, we went into this meeting with merchandise, 
And I was, you know, a newly minted um, published children's book author. And when they were talking about what they wanted to have happen with Duffy and, the, and, and um, Mickey, they didn't have a story. They just had a premise. The premise was Mickey and Duffy are friends. And there has to be some, some kind of conflict, right, to make a story. Well, the word conflict I used, and it scared them. They're merchandise people. They're not authors. They heard conflict. They thought I was going to make something bad happen, and I lost the gig. Oh, no. Fast forward now, it is super popular. I don't know how many books have been written. I probably could have had a little, whole little side career with Duffy the Bear. So what I learned was... I knew something that they needed in the story, but there was no reason for me to try and explain to them from a literary conversation what they needed. What I should have done was gone, oh, I get it. I love it. This is going to be so much fun. Let me write you a story. And then I would have found something. Maybe they lost Mickey's key. You know, Which that could have been conflict. It's you know? a conflict. Yeah. Right. Super simple. And I would have just written it with that in there with this beautiful resolution, which is what I do when I sit down at the creative process and I solve those kinds of issues. Right. Um, so, but what I learned was I, I thought it would be helpful to show what I knew to kind of put forth the reasoning for why they should hire me to do this job when I should have just said, totally get it. Love it. Let me try a draft and see what you think. Done, done and done. Right. Right. So now I am less forward with with the language around why or what something is kind of hitting a, an issue for me. Instead, I'll just say, what about this? And I'll just offer the solution instead of explain why in the story arc this needs to happen here because of that and this and the other, because people don't think in terms of that. Thank you for sharing that, because that just resonated with me so loudly because I have a habit of saying too much and you don't need to when someone comes up with a creative issue you just give them the solution you don't have to explain how you do it why you do it what you do it so thank you for sharing that I'm sure that's going to resonate with someone else listening because I have heard that similar story before I had Aaron Zygman on the show he wrote the theme to the notebook the film and he was working on another film and they asked him what he thought of the film and he gave too much information and it was just the gig was, it was kaput. You know, it was like, I love it. This is a great idea. Let me create something and you let me know if you like it and how we want to change it. So that, I love that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for being so honest with it. I, I, yes, yes. That's a good, that's a really good lesson. Um, and it's a painful one. It, no, it's I know. I know. <laughs> I'm over here thanking you for making the mistake and I don't mean that. That is a oh, very no, painful no. one. Uh, but wow. Yeah. You're so right. You're absolutely right. It's, Yes. I, uh, final question for you. Um, metaphorically speaking, if you could put a word or a phrase on a billboard for millions of people to see, does anything come to mind? A phrase? Yeah, a word, a phrase, a quote, a short story about life, about creating art, about this time, anything. About this time, I think I would do a giant billboard that was black with the word, listen, and a period in white in old typewriter font. Listen, we need to do because more. I think I think that we are at a time where we must listen. We have to listen to each other. We have to listen to voices that need amplifying. We we have to learn the art of listening, and that means no judgment going in. That means an open heart. That means someone who thinks the opposite of you, someone you abhor. If we cannot learn how to sit and hold space for each other 
and listen to each other's fears and um, hopes and longings. It's in those conversations that we find out that we're more alike than different. And I think right now that would be the thing. That's just what popped into my head. I could see it completely visual, all lowercase, white, listen, period. I love that. We do need more of that. And I do hope everyone listening to this conversation and all the other ones no, learn something, right? This is all to, you know, you help enough other people get what they want, you'll get what you want. It's karma in any other way. And listening, it really all starts with hearing, and not just hearing, but listening to the other side. Yeah. So that's absolutely yeah. beautiful. Stacy, is there anything else you want to add here before we wrap this conversation up? Uh, just that this was a delight. Thank you so much great. for having me on your, on your podcast. I love it so much. It's I, great. It's so nice um, to it, connect with you. Yeah, if um, I would just say, if anyone out there is looking for a writer, an experienced developer, uh, an immersion experienced designer, um, I am available and open to work. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I have some work samples up, or like pictures and little stories, not samples. But um, yeah, I would I would love to join any story that's that's happening at any entrance point, from the ground up, or stuck in the middle, or you're halfway into scripting and it's a disaster. I'm a story doctor, also. <laughs> story doctor, Stacy Barton. Uh, I'm gonna put all the links to LinkedIn, you know, in the profile, so people can find you on Instagram as well. You're across okay. all the platforms, and I do have to publicly compliment your presence on LinkedIn. It's consistent and it's authentic. And mm-hmm. it is a joy to go because Lord knows I'm on there more than I've ever been before. And right. it is a joy to see some authentic, and I know the word is thrown out way too much in the corporate world, um, to see those stories and those those tidbits that you add to LinkedIn because there's some, you know, there's some just silly stuff on there where people are like trying to get likes and clicks and that's not you. You're just sharing what you've done and it's consistent and I think it's a beautiful thing. So anyone else, Thank go to you. her LinkedIn. It's it's quality. So. <laughs> yes. And if you go on there, message me, like it, talk to me. Oh, yeah. um, and people usually don't believe me, but if you are interested in talking to me, send me a message. I'm, I'm pretty much taking anyone who wants to talk. So um, take me up on it. I love that. I love this conversation. Thank you for taking this time with me today. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Stacy Barton. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another Curiosity Conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening.